0: Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Muse, the brain-sensing headband that helps you meditate and Five Star App Meditation Studio. I'm Patricia Carpus, your host along with my co-host this week, Muse co-founder Ariel Garten. Before we get started, a reminder to check out our free meditations on Muse or Meditation Studio. And if you and your family want to learn to meditate while you're at home or just deepen your practice, use the discount code MUSESTRESSLESS. For your Muse headband at ChooseMuse.com. We're thinking of all of you and wishing you the very best. Now on to today's episode with Arielle. This week, I have a special guest, Siabulela Mandela, who is the great-grandson of Nelson Mandela. Siabulela is a PhD in peace and conflict studies and continues his grandfather's legacy of advocating for human rights and shares his perspective on the systemic nature of racism with us. He recently wrote a chapter in the book, For the Sake of Peace, African Perspectives on Racism, Justice, and Peace in America. Sia will also share with us his perspective on what we can each do to decolonize our own minds, and the lessons that he learned from his grandfather's character. He speaks to us today from South Sudan, where he works. Welcome, Sia
1: Thank you very much, Ariel, for having me, and thank you to our listeners. For joining us.
0: It is my sincere pleasure and honor. I would love to begin with you telling us a little bit about your own story and the inspiration for your current work.
1: Thank you very much Ariel once again. I grew up in a family that was highly politicized and I uh, was shaped by the history of the family insofar as its involvement in the struggle against the apartheid regime and colonialism in South Africa and in Africa in general and in the fight for the complete liberation of the black masses of our people against the shackles of oppression, apartheid, racism, and all forms of injustice that the generation of Mandela waged against. So I was shaped by that kind of history and I was shaped by those material conditions. And it is the involvement of my family and my involvement of my great-grandfather Nelson Mandela that has inspired me to enter into the field of international relations, more particularly focusing on issues that relate to peace, conflict resolution, and human rights in South Africa and in Africa as well as the world more generally. And at the moment, I'm at my final stages of my doctorate studies which are registered under Nelson Mandela University in South Africa. And partly half of my research was done in the United States at George Mason University School of Conflict Resolution and Analysis. That particular training has opened opportunities for me. I'm currently based in Juba, South Sudan, where I work as a team leader and the country director for the South Sudan program for an organization called Journalist for Human Rights. So that is the work that I'm currently doing in South Sudan as part and parcel of supporting the peace and uh, development agenda since the end of the civil war in this part of the world. So that's the kind of the work that I'm doing and that's what I'm engaged in at the moment area.
0: I'm sure people are curious about a little bit of your direct experience with your great-grandfather. What is a memory that you might have and a piece of wisdom that you've learned from him that you'd like to pass along?
1: A very few memories of my great-grandfather, Nelson. And uh, among those memories was always the value that he instilled to all of us and something that we all learned from him and even the past generation that passed it to him that it's of critical importance to treat people equally regardless of their social status in society when you begin to treat people equally you begin to understand and you begin to know who people are for people will be willing to talk to you and people will be willing to listen to you and there's one thing that nelson did if you look at the entire story he would have conversation with his prison guard and he was highly regarded and respected by his president, for he treated that particular individual with the same respect that he would treat the president of South Africa. Then, and it is someone that comes from humble beginnings. And when you begin to emerge from that kind of a background as an individual, you get to recognize that we are all important, regardless of our social status in society. And one thing that is beautiful about Nelson is that he became a security guard in the mine before he was part and parcel of politics and he went on to become a prisoner. And from being a prisoner after becoming a liberation leader, he went on to become a negotiator and then a president of the country. So he has gone through all different social statuses in society and he gets to recognize all of them. That is why he treated people equal. That is why he will treat as a security guard, the same way you would respond to Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth in the UK, in the same way you would speak to Bill Clinton, the then president of the US, in the same way you would speak to a security guard, a teacher, and respect a teacher and so on. It's critical to respect people. Respect is of critical importance. Irregardless of who a person is or where they come from, their social status in society, you must always give respect. And in the same way, that is how people are going to begin to respect you as an individual. So that's one thing that I learned from him. And it is a value that I continue to take to me wherever I operate, wherever I go, I begin from a point of departure, of giving respect to each and every. For their mere purpose of being human beings, they have a respect in me. And it is on the basis of the content of their character that will make me to be at odds with them. Other than that, I would always respect each and every individual, irrespective of the race or the color of their skin or whatever religion that they subscribe to. Those are some of the things. And for me, as Nelson was, I pledge an alliance as he did to the oppressed people in different parts of the world. And I pledge my support and my allegiance to those individuals that are suffering any kind of oppression of injustice. And those are the people that I associate myself with. Those are the people that I would stand by and support, irregardless of where they are, be it the people of Palestine as they are suffering under the Israeli apartheid system at this point in time. So those are values that I've learned to Madame and of course he loved children and I tend to love kids so much myself, for I believe they are the future leaders of tomorrow. So those are some of the things that I have learned and those values inform me my behavior and how I act and how I express myself in different parts of the world, be it I'm speaking or I am writing or I am leading a particular group as I am even in my work at the moment in South Sudan. I am informed by that kind of upbringing as an individual that comes from humble beginnings.
0: It's fantastic. Can you talk to us a little bit about human rights advocacy and what are some of the mechanisms that you've been using and that you advocate for human rights advocacy?
1: An agenda for human rights is one that will always be part and parcel of any human development. Obviously, understanding our nature and where we come from as a world more generally. We come from a position of disenfranchisement where one particular race was oppressed over the other race informed by an ideology of white supremacy, informed by an ideology of segregation, informed by an ideology and values of racism. And we come from that protracted and deep rooted violent history as the world, and I'm not even going to go deep into issues that relates to all the wars that have been fought, be it global wars, the First World War and the Second World War, which ended in 1945 with the defeat of the Nazi regime. If you look at those kind of history that the world comes from, and you go deeper into the history of slavery, the history of colonialism, and the history of apartheid, And the history of racism and systemic violence against a particular group by another, that's where the world comes from. So therefore, the idea or the struggle for a universal declaration of human rights as it was done in 1948 and the continuation of a fight for a complete liberation of groups that continued to be marginalized, that continued to be suppressed even beyond the declaration of universal human rights by the then United Nations. You will get to understand that the struggle for human rights is one that has been part and parcel of our evolution as a human race. And as things stand, even in our generation, era at the moment, it is a struggle that is still continued to be waged as evident in different protests happening across the world from Korea the struggle for complete independence and freedom and to the struggles in Brazil and the protests in Brazil and more recently the George Floyd protest of Black Lives Matter in the United States. That has been going on for ages since slavery up to date. That agenda for equal universal human rights for all is one that has always been part and parcel of human development. Everyone has to be afforded the fundamental and universal human rights as declared by the United Nations.
0: So if we have a systemic problem, which clearly we do, what is the personal way out of the systemic problem? What can each of us as individuals do in order to shift this systemic injustice?
1: There is a need to have an honest conversation about the past. And upon that There has to be a declaration made by the perpetrators of such injustice. They have to come out clear and be very clear that slavery, segregation and racism and the entire ideology of white supremacy is a crime against humanity. And upon making such declaration and having an honest conversation, and dialogue about such issues, there has to be a practical expression of such declaration through redress, through compensation, through building institutions directed at bringing about healing and bringing about the redress at building and formulating even policies directed at bringing about the redress to the victims of such injustices. Until such a time that is done, the United States will find itself 10, 15 years from now engaging into the very same mass protests of Black Lives Matter because they've never had an honest conversation about such injustice.
0: Truth and reconciliation committees have been a sort of staple of conflict resolution. And we can look at this both at the state level and at the individual level. And it's how we reconcile conflict within ourselves as well an admission of what happened, honest conversations, and step towards a future that we can both agree upon. When we look at this from an individual level, you know, most people who are listening to this are people who desperately want to make a difference in their own lives and in the greater society's lives, and are not in positions of government to start a truth and reconciliation committee. What are the mechanisms that we might be able to have in our own hands to make change within our own lives and communities?
1: Well, Ariel, it's critical to point out that the entire world is in a position once again that it is in because of the ideologies that were designed by the past generations, the ideology of white supremacy, for instance, that informs racism, that informs segregation, and that informs systemic violence. Such systems are not adopted entirely by communities. They begin to be accepted by individuals. So it has to begin with an individual. The individual has to deal with themselves. They have to decolonize their mind. They have to bring themselves into the altar and sacrifice What that ideology makes them to be and recognize the human within themselves for even the perpetrators of such systems. They themselves are victims of violence. They are victims of injustice because they are imprisoned by hate. They are imprisoned by segregation. They are imprisoned by this entire ideology of white supremacy. And it makes them to do these evil and unjust acts against the other, So we have to deal with the individual. We have to decolonize it and conscientize the individual. It's critical, therefore, that if we deal with the individual, it has to also begin within families themselves. Our fellow brothers and sisters from the white communities, they have to engage with uh, on an honest conversation with their children. Begin to teach your children about the past, what happened into the past, insofar as the history of slavery, and so far as the history of our uh, violence and white supremacy, the ideology of white supremacy and racism more generally. When you begin to educate. Your children, you get them into a level where they would understand that all people are equal, regardless of race and color, that you must always judge people on the basis of the content of their character, not on the basis of the color of their skin, their religion, or their background. Once we begin from there, we are beginning from the foundation of human development or what makes us human, that it is love. Love is what comes more than anything. Love is what makes us human. And no one was born hating anyone. Someone was taught to hate someone. And in fact, it is Nelson Mandela that argues that no one was born to hate one another. And he continues to say, in fact, love is something that comes more natural than its opposite, which is hate. So those are kind of things that we need to begin to do. So it begins, it has to begin at home. And we have to have these conversations as individuals in our families and in our communities.
0: You talked about decolonizing your own mind and, you know, decolonizing the self. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what are the practices and the mental attitudes that can lead to that level of self-decolonization?
1: One of the most critical things is just be informed. It's very important, it's very critical for any human development, for any individual to be informed. You must read about your past. You must read the history, what happened. Get to understand why certain things are happening in your community. Read widely. It cannot be that the only history that you know is the history of white conquest. You don't know the other side of that particular history, the victims of such injustices. So it's critical that you must decolonize your mind and begin to understand that there are alternative voices other than the voice that seeks to advance an agenda for white supremacy and an ideology of racism more broadly. There are other voices. So it's therefore critical for us as individuals to start looking at black literature, get to understand the story or the different perspective of the American history from a different point of view from other black scholars. They are black scholars that are writing about the history of racism, the history of white supremacy, the history of white privilege, the history of slavery, segregation, and so on and so forth. So it's critical that we begin, therefore, once we begin by reading alternative literature on the American past, we begin by decolonizing our mind. For if you look at the American academic institutions as they are, there has to be a decolonization of the education curriculum, which is something that is lacking. And unfortunately, many generations have fallen victims of the propaganda advanced by that education system and that curriculum. So in order for us to get rid of the shuttles of colonization and the struggles of one-sided story, we must diversify our reading. We must begin by reading, uh, having uh listening to alternative voices and not the mainstream media. And oftentimes media, what it does is to misinform than informing people. It's critical, therefore, to look at alternative histories and alternative sources. By so doing, you begin the process of decolonizing of the mind and decolonizing of the individuals. And you then get to be able to be in conversations with people. And you must be willing to listen, regardless of how uncomfortable what Uh, The conversation is all about or the theme of the particular conversation. You must be able and be willing to listen to others and listen to the pain of others, get to sympathize with them. Within that process, that is also part and parcel of the process of decolonization of the mind and decolonization of the individual. Those are some of the ways that we can advance that particular agenda.
0: Certainly listening to your perspective and your story is Painful for me and painful in a good way. And so I really appreciate you speaking your truth and giving us the opportunity to listen to it. Thank you. When you look at the world that you want to see 50 years from now, what does it look like and what do you think realistically can happen to make it happen?
1: As the world, the world that we know it today, and as this generation, we have a choice to make. We either continue. In this adversarial path, informed by our history of slavery, segregation, colonialism, apartheid, and all forms of injustice, it's either we continue in that adversarial path, which for me, I can guarantee you, it is a recipe for disaster. Or, as this generation, we make it our own mission, to take a stand against all forms of injustice, dismantle all institutions that advance an agenda for white supremacy, that advance an agenda for racism, that advance a colonial agenda, that advance a violent or systemic violence. That is an antithesis of transformation. We take a stand and dismantle such institutions. And we build upon the foundation laid by the generations that have fought for the limited freedoms that we are enjoying today. The likes of Rosa Parks, the likes of Martin Luther King, the likes of Malcolm X, the likes of Ngwam Nkrumah in Ghana, the likes of Samora Moshel in Mozambique, the likes of Nelson Mandela in South Africa, the likes of Mahatma Gandhi in India and all the heroes and heroines who have fought for the limited freedoms that we are enjoying today we build upon that foundation and set an agenda where everyone is treated equally irrespective of their background irrespective of the color of their skin irrespective of their creed or even their history we build upon that particular foundation, and we bring about equality in our communities. We bring about fairness in our communities. We bring leaders that are ethical and willing to represent us and the true values that we stand by as communities. Then we are going to be able to create a world that is free and fair, a world without violence, a peaceful world, a world where people are treated equally. But unfortunately, as things stand at the moment, 50 years from now, it seems as though we will be singing the same songs that the past generations have sang. You'd remember the speech that Martin Luther King did in 1963, I Have a Dream. And that particular dream has led us into a constant vicious cycle of dreaming. We are still dreaming about the same ideals that Martin Luther King was speaking of in 1963. In South Africa, we are still dreaming and hoping for the freedoms and the promises that the 1994 peace deal of the Codesa or the Congress for Democratic South Africa promised that it will deliver under the Mandela administration. We are still hoping. We are still hoping for the same ideals that our forefathers, that many have died and sacrificed their being and their lives for the freedoms that we are enjoying and the freedoms that we hope to enjoy in years, years to come. So that, that is the kind of a situation. The choice is ours. It's either we continue on, on this adversarial path or we forge a way forward. We forge a different path. So that is the world that I envisioned in the years yet to come. But that world can only come as a result of the choices that we make as this generation. You'd remember that the past generations made a choice and the consequence of the choices that they've made are the freedoms, as limited as they are, the freedoms that we are enjoying today. Many slaves have perished, waging a struggle for complete liberation of the oppressed people in different parts of the world. Many people under colonialism, under apartheid, have perished, waging a struggle for the freedoms that we are enjoying today. They decided to take a stand. You'd remember in the dark when Nelson Mandela was sent into prison in the 1960s, he said, I am prepared to die. These were ideals. The freedoms we're enjoying today are the consequences of the sacrifices that generation made and they were prepared to die for. That is why today we are able to even vote in South Africa for their people that wage a struggle and sacrifice their lives. They have been sentenced to life imprisonment, many of them, many of them didn't even see, enjoy the peace dividends of the struggles that they have waged. They perished during the struggle. They perished during different wars that have been fought. So we then have to make a choice. And what will be of the 50 years, yet to come, would be the results of the choices that this generation makes, confronted by the challenges of its own time.
0: Thank you. Your great-grandfather was an incredible Incredible man who had the courage to look at a situation and say, I am willing to risk my life for this. I am willing to put everything on the line for peace. To people who are listening, for whom that seems like a very scary bargain, I think we have to understand that there are various steps that we can take that don't necessarily mean putting your life on the line, but mean maybe putting your mentality on the line. Can you speak a little bit about the mentality involved here?
1: I think one of the things what was very much evident to Mandela and his generation is discipline. Discipline was one of the fundamental pillars of the struggle that they've waged. And secondly, selflessness. Selflessness became part and parcel of the foundation of the ideals that they were advancing. And more importantly, self-sacrifice for the freedom of the entire generation. They had to sacrifice themselves for the enjoyment of freedoms for the generations yet to come. And that was done on the basis of what one would call pragmatic leadership. The decisions that they have taken The strategies and tactics that they have adopted were based on what was practical or what was pragmatic, given the challenges that they were facing at their own time as that entire generation. So I think those are some of the things that if you want to look at, it's, it's selflessness then becomes of critical importance. And you must have a vision. And what is our vision and what is our mission? It is upon understanding what our mission is as this generation, and that mission had to be informed by the material condition of our own time. It's either, as France for takes it, each generation has its own purpose, to fulfill it or betray it with relative propensity. So we have still, once again, on the question of choice, insofar as what our mission is as this generation. Do we fulfill what our mission is or do we betray it with relative propensity? So that is the position that we must begin. That should be our point of departure. What is our mission? And that mission is informed by the material condition of our own time. And I guarantee you, generations yet to come are going to criticize us for failing to take heed to the call of duty and answering to our our own mission, which is informed by the material conditions of our own generation. We will be in the wrong sides of history if we allow systemic violence, racism, and the ideology of white supremacy to continue, that our children in the generations yet to come will still suffer the same fate as we are suffering today. We will be in the wrong side of history. And the generations yet to come are going to ask us, what did we do?
0: Wow. That is incredibly empowering and inspiring. This is within our own hands and in some sense within our own responsibility. You are an incredible orator and a very inspiring speaker. And obviously incredibly intelligent and well-versed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If people would like to learn more about your work, your perspectives, any of the organizations that you spoke about, where can they go to find more information?
1: For more information, they can follow Journalists for Human Rights at jhr.ca, or if they want to follow my work and what I do in my own platforms, they can look at Siawolela Mandela, on LinkedIn, they would find me there and also on different platforms. I am always here, Bulela Mandela. They would learn about the work that we do and uh, in different parts of the world and different activities and projects that we've been involved in in different parts of the world. And also uh, probably more intimately, if they look at, for the sake of peace, systemic racism in the United States of America. In that particular book by Charles and uh, Numuraba, I wrote an opening chapter which focuses on racism in the United States. I give a comparative study of South Africa and America history of violence and uh, racism. So I think if you want to learn more about the ideals that I've advanced in this particular podcast, I think that would be of critical importance as well.
0: Well, thank you so much for your incredible work, your perspective, your incredibly informed and educated perspective on the structural issues that exist both in America and in Africa. And thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and your history and your passion to help each of us make progress in ourselves and in the world today.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Erin. Thank you for the platform and to your listeners as well, thank you very much for giving us the voice to advance these perspectives and create a better world for all of us. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for your time, your heart, your passion, and your action. That was Siabulela Mandela. You can find him on LinkedIn at siabulela, S-I-Y-A-B-U-L-E-L-A, Mandela. You can find out more about Journalism for Human Rights at jhr.ca. And For the Sake of Peace is now available on Amazon. If you're curious about Muse, the brain-sensing headband that helps you meditate and sleep, you can find it at choosemuse.com and use the discount code MUSESTRESSLESS. You can also find content in guided meditations that help you confront the thoughts and assumptions in your own mind, as well as content to help you get through COVID. We are wishing everybody a safe and healthy week. All the best.